Hello, and welcome to Beyond Prospecting, the APRA podcast, featuring thought-provoking conversations with prospect development and fundraising experts. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Thank you for tuning in to Beyond Prospecting, an APRA podcast. I'm Lindsay Nadeau, APRA's 2020 Conference Planning Committee Chair, and I have the pleasure of introducing you to your prospect development virtual experience keynote speaker, Frank Sesnow. Frank, many among the prospect development community are likely to know you as an Emmy Award-winning journalist, a bureau chief, an anchor, White House correspondent, and talk show host on CNN, including my own favorite as an exceptional host of Reliable Sources. You're also the author of Ask More, The Power of Questions to Open Doors, Uncover Solutions, and Spark Change, which will serve as the foundation of what you'll bring to your keynote during the conference later this month. But what many APR peeps may not realize is that beyond journalism, you have decades of experience in fundraising. You serve as the director of the George Washington University's School of Media and Public Affairs and are the creator of planetforward.org, a project that brings students and experts together to examine sustainable innovations that move the planet forward. It's rare that we're able to feature a keynote with direct fundraising experience, so I thought it would be worthwhile today to dive into your fundraising perspective before the conference arrives. So Frank, can you tell the prospect development community about your fundraising background and as a program director, how you came to love fundraising? (laughs) Of course, well, hi, Lindsay. Thank you very much for having me here and, and for this conversation. I'm looking forward to all of it and to talking with the larger community. Well, I guess if I thought about my fundraising, honestly, I would go all the way back to high school because I remember when we were putting a talent show on, um, I took on the task of selling tickets and we were raising money for whatever silly thing we did in high school at the time. And I took these tickets to the, to the high school talent show and wouldn't everybody just want to pay money to go see a high school talent show. And I headed off in the neighborhood and I went door to door and I sold these things to people because we were doing it well because we were so clever and putting on a talent show. And secondly, because we were trying to raise money for a worthy cause, which was the high school and the high school community in this town. I remember going up to one particular house that was particularly large and imposing. And for the older folks in this audience, they may remember the name. On the mailbox, it said R.C. Hotelet. That was Richard C. Hotelet. He was a correspondent for CBS News. He was the United Nations correspondent. And as I later learned, he was the last reporter at CBS hired by Edward R. Murrow personally. Well, here I am, a high school kid knocking on this very imposing door, and I sold two tickets to his wife, and I was very proud of that. But going forward um, in my work uh, at my university, in my work for my alma mater, where I've served on the board of trustees, in my work uh, as a board member for the Posse Foundation, um, and for many other groups, nonprofits, whose boards I sit on, philanthropy and fundraising is a critical part of what we do. Um, We wouldn't be in existence in all of these organizations without it. And to me, from that silly high school talent show on forward to much more important and profound causes for which I have helped to raise some money. In some cases, they make a difference, a a tangible difference in someone's life and entire future. Having an idea, sharing that idea with people, communicating it in a way that makes them excited, makes them believe in something, and ultimately to support it with a check, with their own resources, 
has just been one of the most rewarding, gratifying, fulfilling things that I've, I've ever done. So yeah, I've, I've done it. It's not, a, my, it's not my full-time job, but I sort of surprise some of my colleagues sometimes, I think, when I say, I really enjoy this. Because as I say, to build that support, to build those relationships is just enriching. So did you always love fundraising or did it take a turn at some point where you really started to embrace it? Well, I don't know. I guess when I was trying to convince my father to give me an allowance as a little kid, and he actually gave me my first allowance of six cents uh, <laughs> a week, <laughs> fundraising was rewarding. No, I, I wouldn't say I've always loved it. I wouldn't say I always, you know, went out with a very deliberate, you know, attempt to fundraise, quote unquote. But um, actually, my, my, my transition probably came when I went from when I left CNN. Because I left CNN and then I went to public broadcasting and I did some projects in public broadcasting where fundraising was very much a part of things. At CNN, it was not. We sold advertising and there was a, sort of a firewall between the editorial people, the reporters, me, and the sales team. And we didn't get anywhere near. And, and in some cases, some people considered that sort of dirty work, you know, the, the, the coming up with the money to put the product on the air. At PBS, at public, public media, it's a very different thing. You know, this program is you know, put together with support from people like you. You know, you hear that when if you, <laughs> you watch or listen to public media. And, and suddenly that idea of having um, community support in the form of philanthropy, in the form of financial support, became both very interesting and a much different way to connect with the audience. I, I felt a different connection with people because I felt I was serving them. In a, in, a, in, a, in a more direct way. And so that's where I started to do this. But I also, when I first went on the board of my alma mater, which is Middlebury College, that's where I went to school, I was paired with another trustee. He was supposed to be my mentor. And it turns out he was a very, very successful developer, very, very philanthropic himself. And he pulled me aside in our first retreat weekend. And he said, Frank, he says, there are two things you need to know about fundraising, about development. And I said, well, what is that? He said, first, he said, people give to people. People give to people. And he said, second, people give to big ideas. So this is about relationships and it's about ideas that inspire and motivate. So that's sort of where it came from. I love that. I think that's a theme that a lot of us um, will, you know, be represented in our daily work. And we apply that with the frontline gift officers that we work with directly. So it was great to hear a little bit about your fundraising philosophy. I'm wondering now about, you know, when you're leading your own program and trying to raise funds, how have you created a culture of philanthropy within your program and the team that you work with? Well, the way I like to create a culture of philanthropy is to not talk about the philanthropy and not talk about the culture, but to talk about what we're doing and, and why we're doing it and why we're doing it together. You know, both in my experience and in my book, I, I, I reflect a lot on the notion of mission, all right? It is, what is our shared mission? What are we trying to do? Eradicate hunger, a deal with homeless people. Uh, I have a disabled sister. I have forever, because she's been part of our family and my mother was quite the crusader, been connected with the disabilities community. These are heroes, <laughs> you know, people who are working with people like that. A lot of my journalism took me to places where philanthropy is, is, is a very important thing, whether it's you know, the cancer wing on a hospital or some community group that's trying to make positive change. So 
you know, I think it's first about understanding the mission. What is that higher calling? What is that big idea? Um, that's what connects us first. That's what gives us the sense of accomplishment, purpose, mission. That's what gives people the joy. If they're going to write a check and they're going to feel like they're doing it willingly and because they want to do something, they're committed to it. And it's a shared commitment. So that's what I look for first. How can I identify a, co a shared commitment that we might have? How can I identify, identify what it is that you or this audience cares about? So for example, just very quickly, when I speak to students, let's say I'm in the front of the room, and I'm, which I do all the time, and I'm convening an event, and they're about to see some big politician or some big media person on the stage, and here they are at this college. Well, these events are made possible by the generosity of others. We also support student internships. We have a small um, amount of money that we can contribute to students who are gonna do an internship that would otherwise be unpaid or very underpaid. So that it's not just the domain of rich people who can do these internships, which really are the first rung on the ladder of careers and success, right? I never miss an opportunity to tell people that these opportunities are coming to them through the generosity of others. And understanding how that works and that how that culture of philanthropy has, has and is helping them, that's where I start. That's amazing. And I think that's becoming even more uh, you know, timely of an issue to make sure that everyone has equitable opportunities to, to participate in programs like that. Uh, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about that during the keynote as well. Uh, so as you know, prospect development professionals provide data and insight to support frontline fundraisers who are making solicitations. So the idea of people give to people is something that guides the, the overarching work of philanthropy. But given that our, our audience is you know, a step uh, removed from that on the frontline, we're usually the ones who are helping guide and influence and inform the frontline solicitations. How do you use data to inform your fundraising work? Uh, a lot. I use it a lot. Otherwise, I could just kind of amble up to strangers on the street and say, say, are you interested in this project I'm working on? And probably not get very far. Um, knowing what someone's philanthropic history is, what they have done in the past, what they are committed to, is enormously important. I'm in the process now of trying to raise several million dollars to endow a chair at George Washington University in the name of Ted Turner. Perhaps you've heard of Ted Turner. I worked for him. He started CNN, flipped the switch on June 1st, 1980, and he created a, uh, a, a, an entertainment and a sports empire, and he really changed the world the way the world communicates. Well, who's going to contribute to that? Why would they contribute to that? How much would they contribute to that? Would they be even inclined to listen? Trying to raise $6 million, which I'm doing from a number of people, is a very time-consuming thing. If I can't have the information and the data to put together the pyramid that I need to know who is going to be the major, who will be the major donors at the top, and how will we engage, you know, the the the, the larger numbers, you know, towards the lower side of the of the of that pyramid, I'll be working on this for the next twenty-seven years. You know, so having the data of <laughs> who's done what, who's committed to what, who knows Ted. Um, this, this particular chair at the university will be for environmental media because one of Ted's big concerns has been climate change and the environment. Well, 
there are people who will contribute to that too. Um, and they'll contribute to that maybe because they know Ted or they approve of him, but maybe they're even more committed to teaching future generations about the preciousness of the environment and the storytelling that will support it uh, going forward. So the data is so, so important. And uh, <laughs> as I think about my track record doing this, I had one person I, um, who had given me a six-figure gift for something. And several years later, he came back and he said, well, you spent your way through that. That was all current use money. Uh, how can I help you going forward? And we were having a coffee and I sort of blurted something out. And he said, okay, well, maybe if I'd had more information, I would have blurted something else out, <laughs> a slightly larger number, and he would have said, okay. <laughs> so, you know, um, we still did okay. He was, he's wonderful, he's been incredibly supportive, but um, where I've had that information, I've really, you know, we've been able to maximize it and you build on it. It is so important, and the people who do this work are so critical. I mean, sort of the unsung heroes of this work because that's where the, that's where the mortar for the bricks comes from. I know that story is going to resonate with a lot of our prospect research professionals who have all had that moment in their career where we're like, oh, wait, no, but they could have given so much more if we only asked for a higher number. Right? And then, uh, and then <laughs> you know, you, then you start thinking, okay, well, he's going to play that out over five years. So I can't go back before five years. And then after five years, is that just totally tacky? It's about to go back. I mean, so you kind of want to make sure you're prepared going in. It was a very good meeting. Like I said, I'm really happy that it worked out the way it did. But every once in a while, I think, you know, what, what did we leave on the table there? Yeah, I think that's a question that our industry is constantly asking ourselves and, and our leadership as well. So I think you'll have a lot of chuckles in the listeners. <laughs> um, okay, so before we close, let's talk for a minute about the power of questions to tee up your keynote. So that'll be what we're, we're diving into when the conference is here. Uh, so what's an area of this talk that you find resonates with most of the audiences that have heard it? The area of my talk about questions that resonates with the audience? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. A story I tell sometimes. Um, one of the reasons that I wrote the book, one of the, one of the things that, that gave me the idea was I have a very, very good friend, a female friend, um, who um, married shortly out of college. The marriage didn't last very long. He was a bit of a jerk. And uh, so she launched um, her career and her life and then spent literally decades um, looking for the right partner in life. Um, she's found one, so I'll, I'll, you know, spoiler alert, she's doing great. But she would tell, she would regale us with these stories of how she was trying to, to meet, you know, good partners. And she'd get together with these guys and she said, you know what's just, what I notice, what just drives me crazy, is I get together with these guys and all they want to do is talk about themselves. They never ask me anything about me. Okay, well, that may be a guy thing, in which case, shame on you guys and learn how to ask questions. So that was part of it. Another part of it was um, an encounter I had with a very, very accomplished, very senior executive who um, was uh, joining us in, in one of my places of employment. And um, over a two and a half day period that I spent with him as I was introducing him around, I realized that I'd never once heard him ask one person one question. He knew it all. And it was all gonna be great. And I said to him at one point, you are either going to succeed phenomenally or fail completely <laughs> because he was, just, he was just so sure of himself. And to me, the way I operate, this comes from my 
background as a journalist, where all I do is ask questions. I, I want to know more. I want you to explain more. What am I not seeing? What are you not saying? What am I not hearing? What are we not thinking? What's the conventional wisdom we need to challenge? Um, and so this book came about, and I think what's most resonant with people is this simple fact. We don't even think about this. Who thinks about the questions they ask, how you frame them, how you state them, what types they are? And yet they really are the key to so much success in our life because that's how we tune in. That's how we learn about people. That's how we learn about ourselves. That's how we learn about the world around us. So I created this little taxonomy and maybe we'll talk some about that. Well, that sounds great. I think that's something that our profession definitely struggles with. We are essentially paid to ask a lot of questions and to challenge assumptions and to ask those hard questions of frontline gift officers and fundraising leadership. And sometimes we don't always know the best way to approach the question or how to craft it for persuasion. Um, or, you know, some of the individuals who do research, we often struggle with how many more questions do I ask before I just deliver the research to the gift officer? Like how much time can I spend um, on this for uh, the best cost benefit analysis outcome? So I think it'll be really great to help, you know, tap into those, that skill of asking a question and how we approach them to inform our work. Well, I look um, forward to it. In fact, one of the chapters in the book, which is about mission questions, mission building questions, really revolves around philanthropy and the kinds of questions that get asked in trying to build a relationship and um, understand, establish common areas of interest and where that mission is, where that big idea is, where you can join forces with someone enough so that that person is going to want to contribute their own treasure to the enterprise. So I think it's very much built around the types of questions that get asked. And if, it, if there's a question coin, Heads is questions, tails is listening. How do you listen? What are you listening yep. for? Because you can't, like, I, you know, and this is certainly true in the world that I come from and develop this in, in interviewing, you know, a great questioner is also a great listener because most of the great questions actually are in the follow-ups, not the initial question. I love it. Well, Apper Peeps, I hope that you enjoy getting to know Frank the fundraiser and that you're excited to explore how the questions we ask, especially during today's pivotal times, can drive our own and our nonprofit's success. I'm excited to virtually see you all at Prospect Development Virtual Experience this the week of August 24th as Frank kicks us off on day one at 11 a.m. Central. Thanks so much, Frank. I appreciate you joining us today. It's my pleasure. I look forward to all of it. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Prospecting, the APRA podcast. To discover all that APRA has to offer, visit aprahome.org. For links to content featured in this episode, check out the show notes. If you like the show and want to help others find us, please subscribe to and rate us on iTunes. Until next time.